Welcome back, everyone. So we have covered dog shows and catfishing, and I promise this does not have any animals in the title. This week, we're going to talk about mass casualty events. They continue to be at the forefront of concern here in the U.S. and, of course, abroad. But there's some new research coming out that we want to share. And if you are a Patreon member or caught a live stream on our YouTube that we did back in March, this may serve as a little bit of an overview for you guys because we talked about domestic violent extremists. We're going to have a lot of domestic talk today, a lot of violent or violence talk today. And (laughs) the crossover. We give an example of the crossover, which is terribly frightening. Yeah. So I'm going to try to keep it straight and in the verbiage for you guys. But we did cover that topic on a live stream. And today we're going to be getting more in depth. But if some of this sounds familiar, that's probably where you've heard it before. So we are going to jump into that in a moment. And then we have a great announcement. We are officially confirmed for CrimeCon this year in Vegas. We couldn't not go because it's so convenient. Uh, You have the benefit of having been there once before. I have not. So I'm really looking forward to going. We're going to do a big Airbnb sort of crawl space media and (laughs) and their allies. The crawl space house? This crawl space house, which sounds really fucking frightening. Yeah, it does. Um, We're going to put up cameras and live stream it. And No, just kidding. Well, we should do a couple of like sit around live streams, which would be fun. But if you are registering, use the code confidential when you are registering and you'll get 10% off your badge price, which is a nice little chunk of change. Yep. And also, you know, keep your thoughts and suggestions out there because if a presenter falls through, Dr. Shiloh and I can step right in. (laughs) We are ready at any moment to talk with our wonderful PowerPoints and our oh my goodness, wandering across the stage laughing at ourselves. Can you imagine what we could pull out of our back pocket just to present on? (laughs) So easily. So easily. Yeah. And then we'll be given our own show, our own residency in Vegas. If we could I'm make sure a fraction of Celine's money, I'd be fine. I'd be, I'd be as much as I love my job, I'd be up and gone. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm, I'm good with this. Yes. So come hang out with us on Podcast Row, please. We are making all of our arrangements for our table, our booth, and want to make it super fun for you guys. So we hope to see you there. Yes. All righty. So some trigger warnings for today. We're going to be talking about intimate partner violence mass shootings, other types of mass casualty events, some bombings, things like that. Again, not getting into the nitty gritty too much, but it's it's a lot. And I think, you know, the trigger warning is more because these are really scary things that we see on the news that can start to seep into your psyche a little bit. And so if you feel like it's been too much, you know, you can always table this episode for later because I know it's a heavy topic and it's a scary topic. But this is also why we talked about it previously is because I feel like people have questions about it and what's what and is this as big of a deal or as common as it seems to be. And we'll talk about that a little bit today too. So let's look at just some foundational info as we move into this topic. In 2019, there were 68 terrorist attacks in the United States. 
let that sink in because I'm sure you didn't think you heard of 68. This is a significant increase from the only 18 terrorist attacks that occurred about a decade before in 2008. Now, Can I just jump in there for a second? Yes. With that? We've touched on this topic several times before. We spend and get vocal on it, but it's so easy in the stress of today's life that we just dissociate and minimize mm. this constantly increasing number of really terrifying events. Totally, yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if somebody's out there going, wait, no, that number can't be correct. Because when you put it in the notes today, I have the same reaction. But right. yeah, it's real. Yeah. We sort of like put terrorist attacks into really kind of two categories. The the international or foreign terrorist attacks, which, okay, 9-11 comes to mind, right? Of course, we haven't had 68 of those, but there's also domestic. So those that are carried out generally by U.S. citizens on U.S. soil, they have a, a beef against the government or some other... We'll get into the ins and outs, but, you know, some of their grievance in which this is the way that they decide to take action. But we're going to see there's a lot more categories, a lot more typologies now, because we're when we start to see patterns and commonalities in the types of grievances that we're able to put together afterwards. And sometimes it's kind of through a psychological autopsy, because a lot of times these people don't survive these incidents. We start clumping together, okay, what are the motives here? And that's what we're going to look at today, as well as this new emerging one with perpetrators who have a domestic violence or intimate partner violence piece that has preceded the mass shooting or the mass casualty event. We have a great deal of training in this area of assessing and understanding these types of behaviors. When I was a police officer, I was a terrorism liaison officer for my department. So that means that I went to some of these specialized trainings. I had some specialized clearance and I was able to be the liaison between the FBI and my department to be able to take training from them, bring it back to my folks to tell them what to look for. Even in a small city, here's the things that we need to keep our eyes out for because really it it could happen anywhere. And that was definitely post 9-11 because that's when it was heightened and on everyone's mind and when the Department of Homeland Security was developed. So since... September 11th, most terror attacks committed on U.S. soil has been perpetrated by U.S.-born citizens. And ever since the 70s, it's really been bombings and explosions. Those are the most common types of terror attacks in the United States still. And 2017 actually saw the highest number of fatalities in terrorist attacks since 2001. So going back to law enforcement and behaviorists or academics, they're really trying to look at intent in order to understand and help with, of course, prevention. Because once we start talking about these typologies, it's really tricky, especially with some of the more common one. It's not that there are these big, huge entities where there's tons of evidence and tons of red flags and a lot of intel for our agencies that are investigating this. Sometimes it's the guy that nobody's thinking about. So I thought we could take a moment and Dr. Scott, if you will, talk a little bit about what we mean by looking at this threat assessment and how law enforcement and academics and professionals are doing that these days. Yeah, I think that's a good idea to sort of drill down into some definitions. So threat assessment is how we as professionals attempt to determine how serious, how significant, how legitimate, and how credible a threat is, whether it's currently in play 
or it's just understood to be a potential threat. Then once the potential or the actuated threat is identified, the next step would be attempts and strategies to redirect or simply interrupt and negate the efforts of the individual or the individuals who are clearly on this committed path to what Dr. Reed Malloy would call, and I'm going to quote him here, predatory or instrumental violence, the type of behavior associated with targeted attacks. So, you know, he's he's an expert. He's mm-hmm. one of the really the leading names in the industry, in the field of study that does real scientific research academic research in this area. And he's pulling data points from multiple examples of targeted violence to really stay on top of an ever-evolving threat. Yep. So not many people are doing what he's doing. And he is working with a number of really well-respected forensic psychologists and researchers in his area. But he's really the guy that has managed to look at all this from a historical context, present this data, and then some of the other quasi-academics are taking that information and processing it further. But he's really done an amazing job. So And for decades, like, so as this has evolved from international or foreign threats to domestic to, you know, some of his comments about the insurrection were spot on. Absolutely. (laughs) How he sort of predicted some of the things we were going to see and what the backgrounds of these people were going to be like. So yeah, he's been on top of it, had his finger on the pulse over decades. Thank you for saying that. That is a good reminder. I mean, I'm not, this is going to sound humorous and I don't really mean it to, but many times in the work that we do, because we are trained to be observers, evaluators, and assessors, and maybe even interpreters of human behavior, and then extrapolating from that what the motivations behind the behaviors are. It can come across to people when we toss something off, they can go, you're, that's like you're a wizard <laughs> right, <laughs> or something. Right. And it's it's not, it's just like, it's actually quite simple. It's why, you know, profilers in the FBI are not necessarily psychologists. They're learning a skill yeah. on how to do this. But Dr. Malloy has been around forever and has this really profound historical understanding of the development of this phenomenon. He gets this research, it gets then broken down into training for law enforcement and for mental health use and for further academic study by other agencies literally all around the world. There is a really huge emphasis on training with constant. And for those of us that are working, I mean, four times a year, there's a big, legit training that's being Mm -hmm. put on by somebody. Right. And they're constantly kind of focusing on new threats, emerging trends, and then juxtaposed with the overall tone of society at large that plays an intrinsic role in what can happen because constant violence and constant threat of violence can further aggravate and encourage behaviors in people who have a propensity towards this. So I'm kind of in a nice way, I'm dancing around the fact that like we're living in really difficult times and people are very, very triggered. Mm -hmm. And the insurrection last January was a perfect example of that is like people being led astray by misinformation and disinformation that was feeding into a narrative that these individuals had really been indoctrinated into for quite some time. So there's four major components within the threat assessment model. First, and of course, most important is identification of the threat. What is it? What is the potential threat that's out there? And then the assessment, determining the seriousness of the threat. So there can be a threat, 
but the alleged perpetrator or the potential perpetrator can actually be clearly assessed to be not able to follow through with the threats that they're making. So say if someone has a significant history of mental illness with a delusion about what the U.S. Embassy is doing in Vienna. Look, I'm just making stuff up. So, but I mean, I'm not, I'm like literally one step from examples I've worked on. This person can be standing down on Wilshire where all of the consulates are banging on the front door, demanding to speak to the Austrian consulate. Is that really a threat? Well, this person is inept. He doesn't really have the ability to do anything. He could be a harm to himself. He could Mm -hmm. scare people and he could cause a police incident. But as far as like actually following through with threats to bomb somebody that's 4,000 miles away, is that credible? Not really. Right. So an assessment is really important to see on that spectrum whether or not the person is capable of carrying out the things that they say they're going to do. And then we have this case management aspect that is developing intervention plans to really try and address that underlying issue. So say on a smaller micro scale, it's bullying. This is a person who feels marginalized by their peer set or by society at large, or they have a history of anxiety or depression or any other of these plot points on the DSM diagnostic spectrum that might make them more likely to become radicalized by movements like the incel movement. People fall into that because of it fits a need and it creates a narrative where it takes away responsibility for them. And we've talked about that several times with Nama and certainly on our one of our initial episodes way back when, when we talked about the incel movement. So then following case management, we're going to talk about follow-up assessment and then safety planning. And that's really working hard to construct a maintenance plan that involves follow-up and then hopefully the use of what we call RSIF, which is a rubric that includes looking at these four categories, recency, severity, intensity, and frequency. So that feeds back to the initial assessment. Let's look and see if this is a legitimate threat And even if it's a legitimate threat, does it have the power behind it to actually work? And then if it does, how do we address it? Do we go in subtly with a mental health team? Do you go in with a federal team, with a city team, a county team? It all depends on the nature of that threat. And you said this so succinctly, but this is hard scary stuff because we we have these models but predicting human behavior is one impossible but we're doing the best we can to account for that through art and science i really believe but we can look at cases of things that went wrong and kind of look backwards and go oh it, it was that initial assessment that wasn't done or wasn't done correctly or it was that case management piece or now we've done all that but where do the resources come to follow up on these things and monitor? So well, it's absolutely. very, very complicated. It as, is. You know, kind of laid out cleanly this sounds. Yeah, I gave those bullet points and it is a recursive model that is really challenging. As a mental health professional, you know, I can be in the midst of all that going, I don't know if this is going to work because they haven't necessarily committed a crime yet. So we don't arrest people for thought crimes. Yeah. Did they do anything that was overt as stating something that could be interpreted as an actual terrorist threat or a criminal threat to an individual or an entity. You know, so sometimes we have all this knowledge and we understand that there's like a potential for something really huge here, but Mm -hmm. we don't have enough to act on, which I think is really frustrating for people that don't understand 
how the law enforcement model works in that way is that you have to have everything in play. You can't just scoop people up off the street like a black ops type of thing. It just doesn't work that way. So like I said before, those in academics continue to produce and research and then what they have gathered gets disseminated and further deconstructed to help those individuals in law enforcement and investigation groups form really more useful response models. And there is a whole industry that has sprung up really well. I mean, I think that there are some big players in the industry as a threat assessment and training. Mm -hmm. And then there are some that are sort of more private models for high-end individuals who can afford uber high security and stuff. But ATAP is a big one, Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. Dr. Shiloh and I have presented at the local Los Angeles branch. We had the wonderful opportunity a couple of years ago to do a presentation that was very well received. I've presented at CIT, which is crisis intervention training several times. And while that is really focused on co-responder models that attempt to de-escalate issues in the community with mental health episodes, there is an overlay with potential threats because many times there can be a crossover between someone who is mentally ill, needs to be de-escalated, but actually can follow through with a plan of a threat that could cause a mass casualty event. There's another one called Sigma, which is really cool. It's a female-owned threat assessment professional organization. It provides training to a lot of schools, which is cool. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's just that they go on and on. But ATAP yeah. is really the big one sort of in our circle that we know. Right. And then CIT is, it's an organization as well. Is it international? Yes. Okay. It's CIT, but sometimes I say CITI, Crisis Intervention Training International. Got it. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's the biggest challenge is how do we figure out how to implement and mitigate the threat? You know, so you have all this information, you have resources, but then what do you do with them? And look, at the end of the day, like I was saying before, we're not thought police and mitigating nascent threats may take multiple agencies, many times with co-responder model organizations pushing any combination involving uh, multiple entities like city attorney, district attorney, community mental health, Department of Child and Family Services, Adult Protective Services, and local police forces. Maybe it's not like a huge police force, but like a smaller city police force or an area that's covered by um the sheriff's department. Mm -hmm. So coordinating all those people and all those entities and getting them on the same page can be really challenging. But when you can get everybody on the same page, that's when the real work can be done. Assessing is also really important because where do we clear the non-threat from moving over into the actualized and operationalized threat? So Like I said, I gave you a broad example of somebody who's inept and almost uh, clearly delusional and has no way to take out the Austrian consulate or whatever he plans to do. But then there are other threats that are actually pretty well thought out, despite the person's impairment. And we have to take all of those seriously. So while a lot of work goes into the assessment, evaluation, and dissection of threats, what we have as one of our most potent interventions is a version of what's called the black robe effect. The black robe effect is basically when a person has been charged with a crime, whether it is low level or moderate level, what we know is that when they go in front of a judge wearing the black robe, it does have an effect on them. A lot of people think that it doesn't, but it actually does because it may be the first time that they're going 
oh shit, this is real. I can't get away with this stuff. This is actually real. There are consequences to my actions. So we have a version of that, even though we're not showing up at people's homes with black robes. But you're when not, you're not <laughs> part of a cult showing up at people's doors, uh, only if I could have like a huge, like flying nun hat, that'd be really cool to go with. Or it. if like the robe had like feathers at the end of the wrists or something. Or Dumbledore, like kind of like, you know, <laughs> there's snacks in the sleeves or something. You know, when a combination of law enforcement and attorneys and mental health clinicians show up at your door, that has an impact on you. You may not it's have been taking like- it seriously. Like breaking the chain of this, I don't want to say delusion, but of this path of thinking they're on. And then all of a sudden you're, you're sort of disrupting that and going, whoa, buddy, like we're, we're the reality check right here. I actually, I agree with you completely. Many people create and really live in a bubble or an echo chamber of their perceived grievances. But when somebody actually shows up, it can have an immediate effect of a brisk dose of reality of, oh, wow. I'm actually being watched. They're aware of me, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's not just like the local patrol cop showing up. No. There's a team there. There's some there's a psychologist at my door. <laughs> yeah. I, I love hearing about this stuff with everything you just explained because I feel like it's one of those sort of magic areas where academia and mental health professionals where our work really gets trickled down to the people who need it and something's being done with it, which is like this sort of magic unicorn where, especially in the system we have here in Los Angeles and in the nexus in which you work, where you're going to these trainings, you're getting updates all the time. You're getting this information that has been researched by these wonderful people. And then you're applying it. Like you're putting it into action the next day at work because you you are in that co-responder model as a mental health professional side by side with law enforcement. And it's it's just a beautiful thing to know that's going on. So I know all of this can be um, confusing. Again, it's like, well, what do I pay attention to? The news outlets, social media is telling us you know, about this stuff happening all the time, especially the kind of content that probably us and some of our listeners consume. And so what should I be afraid of? What should I be paying? What should I be paying attention to? And it's it's the drive behind what we wanted to talk about today. And of course, here in the US, the trend, really the scary thing is mass shootings. And we are going to work up to some new research coming out that's linking domestic violence offenders with mass shootings in particular. Now you can have a mass casualty event with any number of ways of killing people or injuring people, but we're going to look at shooting specifically because that's right now where the research is and what seems to just hit close to home for us. But first I want to go over a little bit of lingo in talking about how we categorize offenders. And I'm taking majority of this just straight from the FBI and what they use. So lots of acronyms. We have very complicated names for things and we don't like to spell them out. So we, a lot of times, Scott and I in in trainings and at work, we, we might use the term DVE. So that's domestic violent extremist. And these are individuals who commit violent acts, violent criminal acts in furtherance of ideological goals stemming from domestic influences, 
such as racial bias and anti-government sentiments. And then you have FTOs, which not to confuse anyone in military or law enforcement, which is usually like field training officer, but this would be your foreign terrorist offenders. So someone that is not raised here, someone that is being influenced by foreign terrorist organizations, yet offending or perpetrating crimes on our soil. And then there's HVEs, which are homegrown violent extremists. And these are individuals who have been radicalized primarily in the U.S. and who are inspired by foreign terrorist organizations. So they can turn into ULOs, unaffiliated loan offenders. So let's take a moment here with ULOs just for a moment. So that's that one lone guy that no organization claims. He doesn't have an attachment to anyone, like a formal attachment, but he's acting on inspiration from a particular ideology or group. We specifically F- don't call him a lone wolf because mm-hmm. we don't want to glorify it because they found out that they were really getting off on being called lone wolves. It was a cool name to have. Cool name. I have the matching t-shirt. Oh, man, get out of my head. Get out of my head. Everyone else is thinking it too. It's okay. (laughs) So the FBI maintains that these unaffiliated loan offenders are the greatest threat that we face right now in the U.S. because they're radicalized online and they look to attack soft targets with easily accessible weapons. So a soft target, as opposed to a hard target, a hard target would be something that has a lot of security, a lot of hoops to jump through to get your mission done. So an example of a hard target would be like a police department. You know, there's cameras, there's people armed there, there's bulletproof glass at the front lobby when you walk in. A soft target is going to be a school, a church, a grocery store, places you can just walk into where there's a lot of people and there's very little barrier between you and your potential victims. So I thought that was a terrifying statement, to be honest, but we're going to talk about that a little bit more. So to illustrate someone who is an unaffiliated loan offender, on January 15th, 2022, two weeks ago, British national Malik Faisal Akram, who's 44, was armed with a handgun and he took four hostages during a live stream service at the Congregation Beth Israel Synagogue in Colleyville, Texas. This led to an 11-hour standoff between law enforcement and Akram, and that included hostage negotiations with the FBI's team. It was just, it was still continuing to be live-streamed by the church. It wasn't live-streamed by him. It was live... The church services were being live-streamed. And he went in there and basically was demanding the release of a U.S.-educated... Pakistani scientist with alleged ties to Al-Qaeda who had attempted to kill U.S. soldiers and agents in 2008 in Afghanistan and is currently serving an 86-year sentence at a federal prison in Texas here in the U.S. It's its own rabbit hole if you guys want to go online and check out that story. It's a woman. This this Pakistani scientist slash terrorist is a woman, but he was basically demanding her release. He died during the incident. The four hostages, including the rabbi, were unharmed and rescued. And he had no official affiliation to any group. And no group came out to claim him. You know, sometimes 
afterwards, especially after death, a group will say, yep, that was our soldier, but no one did. And it's interesting because there are even accounts of if it really wasn't someone, but they did a lot of damage and scared a lot of people, groups might claim them anyway, just to go, oh, okay, well, why don't we claim him? Because <laughs> then it looks like we're doing our doing our mission. But these guys are really hard to detect because again, the the type of targets that they're picking, the accessibility to weapons here, and it's not, there's not a lot of network. So there's not communications to interrupt. There's not these underground gun sales to follow. It's really just being done inside their mind, inside their home, all by themselves. And so you have no leakage. We've talked about leakage before. But the best defense, I guess, at this point that law enforcement is focusing on because they're so hard to detect when there is lack of intel and intelligence there is being able to empower likely targets with detection with threat assessment information. And so the people here at this actual church, at this synagogue, had been through active shooter training. Yep. And I, I had information from a previous training that I was at that what this did was it helped communication, establish communication with law enforcement and with each other while they were being held hostage. So they had these tips that they had picked up during training that essentially kept them alive and helped get information about what was happening inside the synagogue out to negotiators so they could use that in. So I know confusing, not that you guys need to, you know, have all of these down, but I think it is good to go over the fact that there are differences and a terrorist isn't a terrorist isn't a terrorist. There are, there are difference in motivations and we're going to get to typologies as soon as as we kind of look at what do we talk about when we say mass casualty event and how that can take a different forms here in the US. And this particular example you're talking about, we don't have a lot of information on him. And I I I can't make any conjecture because I have no site profile. There's no background. But in a case like this and the way you described it, it's a perfect example of potentially, possibly, that this person was self-radicalized. Sure. And their mental health issues. And while we've said this over and over again, is that the actual reality of mental illness being a part of violence, it is the the ratio is extremely low. The statistics show that the majority of people with mental illness do not commit crimes. And in a case like this, though, where someone may have a delusional belief and they have been living in a bubble and stressed out by other societal factors, maybe COVID and isolation. And what are you what are you doing? You're radicalizing yourself with all of this very narrow framework of information on the Internet. That very well could be the origin of an act like this. Right. And there are several steps how someone gets to that. We're not covering those today, but from ordinary Joe all the way up until I'm the person that has to be the one to go take hostages and get the release of this person that there's, there's many steps in between there. You don't go from A to Z like that. Right. So, right. but we have behaviorally been able to sort of draw out how that happens. It's quite interesting too, but mass casualty events. Yeah. So let's get there with a definition. Mass casualty events is really an all-encompassing umbrella term that describes an incident that causes significant harm or death to a large number of people. And despite the incidents of what are called, and I'm doing air quotes here, traditional accidents, unfortunately, as we said before, there's a significant increase 
and intentional acts of violence, such as mass shootings, improvised explosions, mass stabbings, vehicle rammings and assaults, just to name a few. And intentional mass casualty incidents result in far more victims than accidental MCIs, which is, well, again, you know, trigger warning. This is what we're talking about. It's just like body count, which is frightening. Some examples would be clearly, you know, we're leading the world in school shootings and mass casualty events are driven by a number of ideologies. Really, racism is enormous in our country. Racism is a major driver of mass casualty events, as well as political domestic terrorism. So that has a specific term, political domestic terrorism, simply defined as violent terrorist acts with the goal of that group of individuals seeking to gain political or gaining governing power over a particular group or groups. Very important definition that all of us need to be understanding in these very tense times, right? Yes. Terrorism in the United States is seen as an act of violence with the motive to create ideological change. Released in October 2020, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security concluded that racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists, specifically white supremacist extremists, WSEs, will remain the most persistent and lethal threat in the homeland. So an unclassified May 2017 Joint Intelligence Bulletin from the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Department of Homeland Security found that, in quotes, white supremacist extremism poses a persistent threat of lethal violence and that white supremacists were responsible for 49 homicides and 26 attacks from 2000 to 2016, more than any other domestic extremist movement. The U.S. Department of Defense Division called JRIC, it stands for Joint Reserve Intelligence Center, constantly updates information and research on the most insidious threat to the United States, which is domestic terrorism. So they assert that there are significant numbers of groups that are absolutely focused on instigating discord and promoting violence within this country. Domestic violent extremists, homegrown violent extremists, FTOs, nation-state actors, and unaffiliated loan offenders, ULOs, all aim to complete these goals by the active spreading of misinformation, disinformation, and promoting conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. What a shocker. Right. Is any of this shocking to you? Because <laughs> it's all been in play, right? If maybe 10 years ago, I would be like, oh, wow, interesting. But... When you're seeing it on the nightly news, like no. on, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So the the look, five point four percent of the U.S. population are found to identify strongly with white supremacist values. Five point four percent doesn't seem like a lot. It is a lot. That's a lot given the total population of the U.S. Yeah. So we can't let our guard down. But those latter three categories of being male, being white, and being racially motivated, they present the biggest risk at this time. Oh, boy. I know. All right. Man, we're buzzkills today. I'm sorry, folks. <laughs> so I, I want to look at five different typologies or motivations, however you want to say it, for domestic violent extremists. And as Scott said, we're talking about people who are motivated by a wide range of ideologies and can be galvanized by really recent political and societal events in the U.S. So we're going to run through these real quick for you. Number one is going to be 
racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists. As Scott said, their agendas are derived from bias, often related to race or ethnicity, and held by the actor against others, including a given population group. So the Charleston church shooting, a mass shooting on June 17th, 2015 in Charleston, South Carolina. Nine African-Americans were killed during a Bible study at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. Brutal. Absolutely brutal. Absolutely brutal. This church is one of the oldest Black churches in the United States, has a long been the center for organizing events, which are related to civil rights, very historic. And the morning after, the police arrested the shooter and the 21-year-old white supremacist had gone into the church, sat down with these people, and attended the Bible study before he murdered them. And he was found to have targeted members of this church specifically because of its history and stature. A less high-profile case example right here out of Los Angeles, where in May 2014, Carlos Hernandez firebombed homes owned by African-Americans in a very like little particular housing development in Boyle Heights. And Hernandez was a senior member of the Big Hazard Street Gang, an organized group that was sending their members out to target residences specifically with the intent to force the families to move away. He was sentenced to several years in federal prison for this very recently. The second category is your animal rights and environmental violent extremists. So on the heels of our (laughs) dog show crimes, these folks seek to end or mitigate perceived cruelty, harm, or exploitation of animals or perceived destruction of natural resources, or environment, also known as eco-terrorism. People have probably heard of that. So in uh, here's an example from like the early 80s where the Super Phoenix SPX was this prototype nuclear power station on the Rhone River in France. And at this time, there was a modest background of sort of ongoing protest and low-level sabotage surrounding the power plant's presence. And on the night of January 18th, 1982, an RPG rocket-propelled grenade attack was launched against the what was an unfinished power plant. And five rockets in total were launched to hit, causing minor damage to the reinforced concrete outer shell, missing the reactor's core But fortunately, it was also empty. And really off the bat, there were no claims of responsibility. It went sort of cold for a long time, even though they did suspect that this is eco-terrorism, but didn't know who was responsible because no one was claiming it. But on May 8th, 2003, Chaim Nisam who in the 80s was elected to the Geneva legislator for the Swiss Green Party, admitted to carrying out the attack. So all these years later, he cops to it. He claimed that the weapons were obtained from Carlos the Jackal, who is a notorious worldwide terrorist. He has committed terrorist acts literally all over the world. I think he's in prison in France now. So I don't know. You know, this guy in pretty high standing in the 80s was, uh, you know, doing some eco-terrorism. But I also remember closer to home, something more local, a little bit more low-key. In 2003, there's a big car dealership in the Southland that in the middle of the night, 20 new Hummer 2s worth... Right. 
you know, like 50 grand a piece were set on fire and destroyed at this car dealership. And it was, you know, part of a wave of vandalism in which like 50 other vehicles had been damaged. It was really to show like these gas guzzling beasts of vehicles. I mean, look, I'm not justifying any kind of, I don't like destruction of property, although, you know, there's a bigger conversation to be had about what that means in the context of history. In, In an example like this, it really, there are other ways to have major point. But that being said, at that time, really, Hummer 2 was the newest, really the only sort of next model of the Hummer. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was a joke. Like, I mean, I don't know where it was, how it was for the rest of the, where you are in the rest of the country or wherever you're listening, but I got to everybody I knew, like you would look at a Hummer driving down the street and you would want to pull up to see what kind of douchebag was driving it. <laughs> Oh, no. I'm not I'm not exaggerating, right? You're going, who 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 really wants to show off? It's really you're showing off how much gas you want to spend or how much money you want to spend on gas. Yeah, that was a weird period of time. Cause I remember Very. when Ford came out with the excursion and I was like, who the fuck needs an SUV like that? big and like yeah, it's nickname who was can the, drive that or park it for Christ's sake. Right. It was nicknamed the Ford Extinction. Oh my God. <laughs> Whatever, Scott. Spoken like a true Prius driver. <laughs> My poor beaten up Miss Electra. <laughs> but we've we've come a long way here in LA. So the the third typology is anti-government, anti-authority, violent extremists. And you know, you can kind of think of your militia types, those who take overt steps to violently resist or overthrow the US government in support of their belief that the US government is purposefully exceeding its constitutional authority and trying to establish what they would say as a totalitarian regime. They oppose many federal and state laws and regulations, particularly those related to firearm ownership. You know, what is insurrection? I'll take that for my daily double (laughs) again. (laughs) But these can be anarchist groups. So those that oppose all forms of capitalism, corporate globalism and governing institutions, which are, they really perceive them as being harmful to society. So Unabomber pops into my head. Perfect example. And then we have our sovereign citizens, which I know Scott and I have said, like, we need to do an episode just on them, but they... You know what? I'm going to start putting it together. I mean, seriously, that we we talked about it last spring and... I have a ton of notes. yeah, Yeah. Yeah, let's do they they basically believe that they're immune from government authorities and laws, and it's very complicated. There's such an interesting history on them. We haven't really seen sovereign citizen being responsible for mass casualty events, but their acting out can range from really like tying up the legal system and all these loopholes. They're just like a pain in the ass, the court system, refusing to pull over for law enforcement because they just don't believe that they're a governing body that has any control over them, but they have been involved in some incidents in which they have murdered law enforcement who have tried to follow through with the laws that they need to enforce, including this is kind of like your big standoffs, government um, standoffs when there's some sort of federal or state crime that has been broken, but these people just don't believe in it. They don't think it applies to them. And then you get your standoffs. I'm just going to say that. I'm not going to name any because there's so many different little groups like this. Yeah, we'll go. And it is. There's so many factions and they all, but they all, you know, find each other online and 
yeah, possibly yeah, disseminate really weird interpretations and, and misinterpretations of constitutional law. Right. And then you have your abortion-related violent extremists. There's enough of these that they have their own category and their ideological agendas are in support of pro-life. Eric Rudolph, you know, definitely comes to mind. He was responsible for the Atlanta Olympic Park bombing. And he how, all- how better to, to, to respect human life than go out and take it? No cognitive yeah. dissonance there. No, no. He he conf- after he was captured finally, he confessed to three other bombings uh, that included two abortion clinics. So one in the Atlanta suburb of Sandy Springs in 1997, an abortion clinic in Birmingham, Alabama in 1998 that killed a Birmingham police officer, Robert Sanderson. He was working off duty as security that day and horrifically injuring nurse Emily Lyons, who was going into work that day. And then he also bombed the Other Side Lounge in Atlanta in 1997, which was a lesbian bar. So Rudolph's bombs were really horrible and brutal. They contained a lot of nails that acted as shrapnel and were devastating when they hit the victims. But that's just one that has just been unfortunately all too common. That's how people who have this extreme belief and choose that they have to act on it, how they do it. It's usually with bombings. In cases like that, you know, as a, from a mental health perspective, there's such grandiosity involved Mm. in that, that Mm -hmm. I have a special mission. I am imbued by a higher power to take these actions and it justifies me taking life. It's, you know, it's very much like, um, very almost like a fascist literature where the idea of Superman, that, that there is a person, I'm the one I get to make these tough decisions uh, and I'm going to do it. And nobody's going to get in my way because I'm going to save this, this, what I believe to be a child. Yep. And then the last category is just kind of a catch-all. It's just all other domestic terrorist threats, ideological agendas that are not otherwise defined in any of the other categories. So this can include personal grievances and beliefs with potential bias, perhaps related to religion, gender, sexual orientation, although not common enough to just have their own category. So like when you talked about incel ideology, it's very rare, you know, for if we looked at the population of people who identify as incel, very, very few of them would radicalize to that extreme and then take action. However, there have been enough mass casualty events that there has been some history for those folks of that ideology, sometimes, you know, very much at the forefront of the information or manifestos that they leave behind. And sometimes it's just putting together some links. But, you know, that's just to me, that's an example of something that's not super common in this already rare phenomenon, but one that we're keeping an eye on to say, what does this mean? And what other factors are going on? Quite possibly, you know, last year we had the Atlanta shooter who shot up the massage parlor, was blaming it on a combination of like sex addiction and religiosity. People automatically thought incel, which there was not any information. I think that was a, a jump, but there was just, we'll, we'll, we'll probably hear more about that. Yeah, but... There were some bullet points in his ideology yeah. that overlapped with some of the things that are said within the manosphere, but it, right, there was no evidence right. that he was actually hanging out in the chat boards or that he had been radicalized or trolled into doing it by other posters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, you know, your school shooters, you don't 
really think of them as fitting in these other categories that we talked about, but there's some sort of personal grievance that's happening there. And of course, Dr. Scott, you hit on talking about mental illness and when it's severe and when there are other factors involved, that's when we see that it could result in this. And the other factors could be a ton of different things, including domestic violence tendencies to to act out against your own family or intimate partner violence coupled with some mental health struggles. So that's that's just looking at how we how common some of these are again to be able to have their own motives and you know i i just want to hit home the the piece about the mental health factor again that you've already talked about where of course some of these people are severely mentally ill but it doesn't work in the reverse guys like we can't say that mentally ill people are dangerous because we know that they're not outside of those additional factors right it's about this combination of factors and thankfully that's very rare if you're thinking about starting a podcast let us tell you about anchor First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. But building on what you were talking about, there's great information from Michael Kimmel, who is a sociologist at Stony Brook University, and he's really an expert on gender and masculinity. And, you know, his statements about this are really spot on. He says that you cannot hope to stem the tide of these groups without acknowledging everything that you just talked about. There's just no way of separating them two. You cannot make sense of hate groups unless you acknowledge those factors. And in his book, Healing from Hate, Kimmel engaged in extensive interviews with former extremists. And what he found is that the main driving factors that led them to these ideologies were a combination of psychological factors. And surprisingly, this really did surprise me, economic. Mm-hmm. And I mean, how is that playing out right now? And it's actually playing out even though the economy is actually pretty good. But if you keep being told you have nothing, you have nothing, even though you're sitting there watching your big screen television and eating your food, you're being told you have nothing. People start to believe it, right? It's doing pretty well, but the gap is getting bigger, right? So people are feeling a, a desperation factor, I think, that is playing into that. Right, right. Kimmel states that these perpetrators believe that something has been taken from them that they were entitled to. And part of my dissertation was about reactance theory. So reactance theory tells them that they have things taken away from them, the things that they deserve. They didn't know they deserved them and they had them, but they've been taken away and that those things were given to people who don't deserve them, like immigrants, gay people, women. Becoming part of these groups is an unconscious way to retrieve your masculinity. I would say retrieve a very distorted view of what masculinity is supposed to be, but certainly that's the theory working here. The white nationalist propaganda is pretty clear in this respect. Hey, join us and you will feel like a real man. I'm going to connect you back to being a real man. Join your brothers, your comrades. We have a sacred mission to preserve the white race. I saw a meme recently that was so great. It was just, I I, God, it was so spot on, is that one of the most ironic things about people who fall into this trap, men who fall into this trap, 
is that they will align themselves with characters that are meant to be the worst example of what you can possibly be. Like, oh, no. like in Fight Club, Tyler Durden was supposed to be the ironic uh-huh. version of a dude bro that is just feeding, you know, of course, we all, I'm not well into a spoiler, but he's feeding Ed Norton all this bullshit. And the whole message of the movie is about how awful that message is. And yet all the dude bros wanted to identify with it. Like, oh, yeah, yeah I want to be Tyler Durden. He's just you like know? pure ego. Like, yeah, just, man. you know, indulging in whatever he wants. <laughs> right. Exactly. So if we're going to break that down further, we use the term emasculation. So the idea that your power, that your power is a man, your your masculine identity is being taken away from you almost surgically. But then that's a reaction to a sort of unconscious level of entitlement. And entitlement is what fuels the anger and the desire to restore what people consider to be rightfully theirs. Oh, so I am starting to get big vibes of domestic violence. Yes, uh, that's where the overlap is. Coercion or coercive control. Mm, Starting to all come together. Yeah, it does. So the profile that Kimmel saw again and again and again included the following. Individuals that were downwardly mobile, lower middle class, and unable to process the impact of huge economic issues. Lower and middle class economics don't work anymore. You, you cannot bargain your way out of being poor. You can't thrift your way out of being poor. There no longer exists the ability to support self or family on a regular 40-hour work week that will allow for a future orientation towards movement out of that financial strata. Mm -hmm. That's just not the world that we live in anymore. And now, unfortunately, Kimmel points out that future orientation and the hope for movement only occurs within the ideology of groupthink. And groupthink is what supports these radical movements and radical groups that get started and with the internet here you have the shit shower and now yep oh man well great segue into me being able to jump into the the research that's coming out and looking at domestic violence and mass shootings so mass shooting fatalities account for a very small percentage about one percent of all firearm homicide fatalities in the U.S. We know that the most common are accidental and intentional shootings within the home where that firearm is and doesn't usually occur or involve people outside of that environment. But mass shootings have received a substantial amount of media attention, and I believe for good reason, but... My my question here is, why do you think, okay, if we can hear this number, it's 1% of all firearm fatalities are mass shootings, and we know it's that rare. Why are we so scared of them? Why are we so appalled when we hear this? Thoughts? Well, I have thoughts. I want to yeah. be very clear about that. this. What's coming up is now my perspective, my opinion based on what I know. Mm-hmm. From being a clinician, from being a researcher, I should say, or a person who engages in research. I'm not an academic researcher. And also as someone who grew up at a time in the South where guns were still part of a culture, but only for a certain thing. Guns were there for protection if you lived in a rural area. Mm. And they were there for hunting. Mm -hmm. 
Like that's the only, or if you were sport, like, you know, we had, you know, uh, shooting sportsmen's competitions and stuff, but it wasn't an identity. It was never an identity. And I remember sitting with one of the detectives I worked with and we were having a conversation about it. And she said, well, it's a lifestyle. And she was a good 25 years younger than me. And I thought, when did guns become a lifestyle? Lifestyle. Hmm. And I mean, you know, that was her opinion. I I just thought that was an interesting thing. And I really didn't have a response to it. But so I I, look, even 1% of firearm homicide fatalities ends up to be a lot considering our population. Okay. So CDC says there were 14,414 or 4.4 per 100,000 population homicides by firearm in 2018. Uh It went on to state that there were a total of 19,141 homicides which is 5.8 per 100 population in 2019. So if we dig a bit further, in 2019, those 14,861 people in the U.S. that died from firearm homicide accounted for 37% of total deaths from firearms. So firearms were the means for about 75% of the homicides in 2018. So the other 3% that you were talking about of firearm deaths are unintentional, undetermined, from legal intervention or from public mass shootings, mm-hmm. which then drills down even further in the recent research is to 0.2% of total firearm deaths. You're right. It's not in the big picture. It's not the biggest thing, but it is a brutal way to die. It's an absolutely horrific, What what why it hurts so much, especially is not just one-on-one and one-on-one is horrible too. I, I myself yep. have driven home and parked and come upon a body in my neighborhood of someone who was shot in the face. Yeah. Horrible way to die. When we multiply that towards like the Vegas shooting, mm-hmm. all those people there to hang out in solidarity, community, enjoying music, having a, a great, relaxing, energizing time, and then to be just picked off like animals. That's horrifying to us. That absolutely digs at our foundation of any sense of safety in the world, which is exactly, yes, just, which is the whole point of terrorism. Dramatic. Right. 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 Well, and if you see a news story about this incredibly rare thing, but it's at a grocery store and we all go to a grocery store every single week, it hits home. It, yes. I could be that person. And when the more you can put yourself in a victim's shoes, it starts to impact us more. So, you know, we can sit on our high horse and go, oh, well, you know, I would never be in a gang shooting. And all of a sudden, you know, we are terrified when we see a shooting for a, you know, at a school because one, obviously the victims are so incredibly helpless. But you think it like the schools here in California are all open campuses. Yeah. You just walk on anywhere, right? So, and I, I please don't misunderstand me that I don't think we shouldn't go out of our comfort zone to have empathy for people who live in areas where there is high amounts of gun violence. Absolutely. But I'm talking about the the things that feel scarier. I'll give you an example. So we do all sorts of debriefings with officers at my job. And what we started doing was doing them for the officers that respond to traffic accidents when there are fatalities involved, especially if they involve children or if they just are particularly horrific, like, you know, just a very gruesome scene because we all drive 
we can all put ourselves in those shoes. We can all, you know, as parents, oh, I have a teenager who drives and now I just had to go respond to a scene where a teenager died in a vehicle crash. It feels closer to home and we feel less safe. So that that's what's happening here when we see these, where someone's like in these environments where you're supposed to be enjoying yourself or sitting in church at Bible study. You should have places in your life where you feel safe. Well, that was exactly where I was leading is to that idea of safeness or safety is that on one side of our working psyche, we have this sort of recurring statement in our brain that says there should be a safe world. Our world should be safe. Yeah. And then the reality is that these things happen in these places like schools and grocery stores and and places of worship. And so we have a real cognitive dissonance about safety versus the reality of it. But the reality, I don't live there. I don't live in that part of the world. Those things don't happen here. And then it does happen there. Yeah. And, and or, who wants to walk around thinking about this stuff? Right. So what we do is we can't handle that overload. And we, to an extent, we dissociate. Yeah. You know, we... We dissociate from that particular issue and we we compartmentalize it and put it over in a corner so that mm-hmm. we don't have to think of it. And for people who are up on this research or up on this content and consume a lot of this stuff and know the ins and outs of it, you know, that that is our curse too for for going out into the world, ignorance is bliss, right? If if you know that there's a contagion effect with mass shootings where, okay, a Mass shooting that's perpetrated and it's shown on the news. We know that within 14 days or so, another one can happen because someone has been triggered to where they have had a plan in place and now they feel like they have to act. So after Las Vegas, my sister and I were going to a Coldplay concert not a week or two later. And I remember telling her, here's the exit we're going to go out of. Here's where we're going to meet up don't wear heels, wear tennis shoes in case we have to run. You know, it was that, I hate the fact that I had to think about those things, but it was in the back of my head because I have this little piece of information and I learned to live with it, right? We make our plan and then we enjoy ourselves and it's it's the world we live in. So recent research is pointing to domestic violence as a precipitating factor for many mass shootings. And there was a study done in 2021. This is recent stuff. There's there's other research out there supporting this, but I'm going to talk about one particular study here. And the backgrounds, basically, they were looking at fatal mass shooting. They define that as four or more people killed by gunfire, excluding the perpetrator. So if he's killed by police or kills himself, doesn't count. And the method of their study is that they went from 2014 to 2019 and looked at mass shooting data from the gun violence archive. They indexed their data by year and mass shooting, and then they collected the number of deaths and injuries. And what they did next is reviewed news articles for each of those mass shootings to determine if one, there, if the shooting itself was domestic violence related, two, if there was a history of domestic violence for that perpetrator, or the third category was, okay, this isn't domestic violence related at all. And then they ran their analysis. So their findings, and astonishingly, scarily, they found that 59% of mass shootings between 2014 and 2019, this five-year period, were domestic violence related. And that mean, that doesn't mean that Unreal. You know, there's necessary history. It means domestic violence incident kicked this off. So either it was the trigger that then sent the perpetrator into this rage to go act, or they 
killed their loved one or family member and then went on to murder other people. They also found that in 68% of mass shootings, the perpetrator either killed at least one partner or family member and had a history of domestic violence. So, so that, you know, when you start combining some of those factors they were looking at, the numbers just start to go up. The majority of the perpetrators died during the shootings. 70-ish percent died by firearm suicide. 27% were killed by police. And then there was one person who died from a, an intentional overdose. But not a lot of these folks live and survive these incidents, which means we're not able to talk to the direct source about this, which which is challenging for the research. And it's like that with the majority of terrorism-related incidents. So this is this is no different. So I want to highlight this by talking about a case in 2017 in Texas. And the perpetrator here was Devin Patrick Kelly. And Devin was married to a woman named Danielle. They were married, had two kids, a two-year-old son and a five-month-old daughter. And they had first met and bonded as friends when Danielle was only 13 and Devin was 17. She had an abusive trauma history. She struggled with suicidal ideation. He had been a victim of bullying and struggled with ADHD himself. And so these were things that sort of brought them together. But after high school, Devin had been married to somebody else. So he had been married once before Danielle and he went into the Air Force. His first wife reported that on multiple occasions, he had verbally threatened to kill her and at least on one occasion had held a gun to her head. There's also court documents that show he physically abused her and their small child so intensely that he could have... It was actually astonishing that he did not cause great bodily harm to this child in the way in which he abused the child. He was eventually court-martialed for domestic violence and spent a year in prison. Devin and Danielle married in 2014, and she reported that their marriage was quite tumultuous he was depressed and reclusive, as she describes him. Through coercive control measures, he ended up isolating them from her family, from the community. I think they had all sort of attended church services before together, and he really got them out of that, which was their community ties. And then Danielle said that sort of towards the end there, he was abusing medication, anxiety medication, and eventually, as she says it, quote, lost touch with reality at his worst. So Danielle eventually asks him for a divorce. And, you know, here's that trigger where she's, the the woman is about to leave and makes that known. And he responds by hogtying her to the bed with rope, handcuffs, and duct tape while their children watch. And he does not kill her. He does not kill the children, but he leaves the house armed with his Ruger AR and two handguns and wearing a ballistic vest. So there is clearly some, I think, idea of when this day comes, I know what I'm going to do. And he he put that into motion. Clearly, he had made purchases and made plans for some sort of incident, right? Oh, sure. I think so. I think so. Because less than an hour, he storms a small Sutherland Springs church where Danielle's mother attended, although Danielle's mother wasn't there that day. But I have heard reports that her grandmother was there that day. And he sprays bullets into the congregation, killing 26 people and injuring 20 others. The victims ranged in age from five to 72. Among the dead were 
several children who were attending Sunday school that day, a pregnant woman, the pastor's 14-year-old daughter. This was devastating. And he flees the scene. In, in fleeing, he, he drives off. He drives off the road and his car lands in a ditch where he calls his parents who had somehow been in contact with Danielle and had rushed to his house to untie her. I, I can't remember if the, the five-year-old ended up calling them or not, or if they were so worried that they just went over there, but they get over there to untie her. And that's when Devin speaks to the three of them over the speakerphone. And he told them what he had done. He told Danielle it was all her fault. So putting this guilt on her of, I went and shot up your parents and your grandparents' church, essentially. Talk about, you know, really trying to hurt her. And then he killed himself. And it it should be noted that in more recent interviews with Danielle, she talks about him being very apologetic for what he did. There's sort of a different tone that I'm seeing with more recent interviews where she's trying to move on with her life. And I think, you know, she talks about how she hates what he did, but she's still a man that she loved. and maybe trying to soften what he said on the phone. But initially it was, here's what you made me do sort of right. thing. And it's possible he did say that. I don't, he could have but, but, been all over the place. Yeah, <laughs> but the result was unfortunately a, a horrible, horrible crime. Yeah, it was the worst. It, it's the worst mass shooting in Texas history at this point. And at the time, our president was in Japan when this occurred, and he made a statement saying that this was not a gun problem, that this is a mental health issue. This is a mental health problem. And I would stand to argue, especially with the research that is coming out, that this is a gun plus a domestic violence problem. Oh, I absolutely agree. I mean, that, and I think that was really poorly done with the statement because it goes back to talking about it being a mental health issue when that was not the primary driver. There were things in play that yeah. may have contributed to the mental health issue. And look, when you knock a couple of legs off that stool, it can't stand, you know? So like mm -hmm. you were saying, we even talked about in the Kevin Cameron model, the fluidity between homicidality and suicidality is really, really dangerous. And then when you pull out the one support yep. or the one sort of basis from which to stand, even though this person was manipulative and coercive and violent, if he feels like going back to that reactance theory, somebody's taking my relationship away from me, yep. boom, we have a really horrifically toxic mixture here. Now, it also is intriguing to me because in the research, we're not able, I was not able to identify what medication he was on for anxiety. Mm -hmm. So that interests me because I was digging a little deeper and I found him, of course, on this site that bugs the shit out of me to no end. It's an anti antidepressant group. It's called like SSRI nightmare story. So SSRI stands for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It is the basic chemical makeup for many of our great antidepressants that are out there in the in pharmacological interventions. There's also an SNRI that works on norepinephrine. And there's a real move. I mean, they have, in combination with talk therapy, they are our best line against severe depression. Yep. We have a lot of people, though, that have had possibly not the greatest results. They possibly may be comorbid with something else that has to do with their character. And, and they maybe didn't follow directions on how to titrate off medications, which you have to follow medications. And body chemistries can vary. But there's no reason to completely vilify an entire class of drugs that have literally saved 
millions and millions of lives. But that being said, in a case like this, let me just assume for a second, and this is a complete assumption, is that if he was given an open prescription for a non-SSRI medication, such as a benzodiazepine, Mm-hmm. And benzos is a class of drugs that include Ativan, Xanax, Valium, and a couple of others. If you get addicted to those, and they are very, very addictive, and you combine them with alcohol, in a large part of the population, there is what is called a rage response. So the very medication that's supposed to take down your anxiety in some people can actually make them wildly violent. All that being said, that's just a lot of conjecture. Clearly, this guy had characterological issues, and I don't think anybody, there's no domestic violence perpetrator out there that does not have some form of a personality disorder. Sure. Now, maybe it's not present all the time. Maybe it gets really bad when you're on a downwardly mobile track Mm -hmm. and you're struggling with finances Mm -hmm. and you don't want to feel less of a man because you can't support your family. So you got to put your anger somewhere. Where are you going to put your anger? You put it on your wife or your partner or your spouse. Unfortunately, just a very, very, very toxic issue um, or toxic combination. Now, in his case, he did have a history of mental health problems going back through high school. And many people reported that not only was he depressed at times and quiet, although he was a quote unquote nice guy, there were multiple reports of him having very poor boundaries with female peers, including approaching a woman and calling her over and over again at work to come live with him and his wife as a throuple in a group relationship. Yeah. And then there's a quote, he would offer me money to hang out with him quite a bit. There was one point where I called the police because he was just calling me so much I had to report harassment. One time he told me I should move in with him and his wife and he would take care of me as long as I walked around the house topless. Okay. Okay. He was also, right, objectification, not really seeing this young woman as an individual with feelings and, you know, Mm -hmm. not respecting boundaries. He was court-martialed in 2012 for assaulting his wife and child. Oh, right. Later received, yeah, he received a bad conduct discharge from the Air Force in addition to confinement for 12 months where he was reduced in rank. Now, another thing, we're talking about Texas, which is a place where it's very easy to get a gun. (laughs) Right. He was actually denied a Texas gun permit, although it's not really clear why. Either he didn't fully answer all the questions that were required to get that permit, or he answered those questions incorrectly, and I was not able to find the research that indicated that. Yeah, maybe they were like, oh, former military and court-martialed? Okay, that's a pretty high bar. Right, right. He was also another Big, huge factor here. He was charged with cruelty to animals in August 2014, although the case was dropped. Full circle, the last episode. Right. So look, there's, again, I want to end this making sure we all understand there's very little evidence that links a direct link to a mental health diagnosis with these kind of behaviors. And I'm quoting a big researcher in this area, Colleen Chiquetti. She is the executive director of the Lurie Children's Hospital Center for Childhood Resilience. And it connects children with mental health services. And she talks about, we definitely have a few isolated stories of unmet mental health needs that have led to some tragedies, but there's no question that 99% of anyone who ever seeks mental health care will never do this. Mm. So I would go back to what you were saying is that, that it is a really horribly unfortunate confluence of factors in that person 
substance use, substance misuse, clearly learned some bad lessons growing up. The animal endangerment is clear, not being able to stay within the, the confines of what's expected of you in the military. There was a lot going on for this guy. So on that website you were talking about, where basically people talk about their horrible experiences with medication, it, were they talking about Devin? Like, was his story on there or? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's a, It's it. an okay. article from, they pulled it from Fox News and they posted it. I guess the article was November 6, 2017. Was the title, this isn't a gun problem, this is a mental health problem? <laughs> well... Look, the name of the website is SSRI Stories, Antidepressant Nightmares, and it looks like it's just, there's a whole set of all these different categories, and there's no one, like, commenting and saying that this is a direct connection, but it's certainly implying it, right, by posting it on your website. they're just kind of cutting and pasting these awful stories. Right, right. Got it. Got it. That being said, it, it is interesting because it did provide this further context that this is a person who had some pretty strong characterological issues and control. Mm-hmm. And the idea of my life is spinning out of control. What can I control? I can control my my partner and treat her in this horrible way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what do we do with this? And I like that you know, whenever you end a research study, you have to kind of say where we go from here. What What's your summary? But also what do you think should be studied? What do we kind of do moving forward? And what is suggested is that there need to be additional laws to prevent those who perpetrate these DV or IPV incidents from purchasing or possessing firearms and the vigorous enforcement of new and existing laws. So this is really where they're kind of pinpointing the nexus of what might decrease the incident of mass shootings, whether, you know, we're talking about additional victims that are sitting in a Bible study somewhere or inside the home. We want to try to protect everybody. I think it's really interesting what I've learned through my training and specifically with with one um, instructor that I go back to that's a, an expert in these areas and he's a DA. In California, we have a good example of this. We have a gun violence restraining order that police can get for... VVRO. Yeah, domestic violence victims, family violence victims, actually really anyone. I mean, you could probably speak to this more than I can that might be a harm to themselves or others without kind of meeting that strict criteria of 5150. You have to make um, a case for it. Yeah, you do for sure. And you're you're calling a judge and asking for this restraining order on their behalf, you know, sometimes in emergency situations. But this was something, ugh, I don't know when this went into effect, but this was something I had no clue about. And when I've been in classroom settings where they talk about this, maybe two cops raise their hand and say, oh, I know about this and I use it all the time. It's it's just one of those laws that's on the books that can be very, very useful in sort of slowing time down when these assessments need to be made to make sure people don't have these guns in their hands. But training and education is just continues to be pivotal and it is happening. I'm glad it is. Like I was it saying is. at the top, this is one of those places where it works. I'll tell you one thing that I would love to see happen in this domain that I work with consistently in my job is that with many of the cases that cross over into the legal system. So this is somebody that discharged a weapon in the midst of a delusional episode or a psychotic episode or may have 
misinterpreted what their family's motives were when the family was trying to calm them down. So they attack family members and then they're taken to court. So these are mm-hmm. like, they are in court. What we will do is we will advocate. I will work with the defender. My partner will work with the DA and we will try and bring everybody together in the best interests of the individual and the community to mandate mental health treatment. So can you imagine, and this is for people who actually are pretty significantly mentally ill. What about if it wasn't for that, if it was for, and I don't mean like domestic violence and anger control, like anger management, but like, look, sitting in a, a group doing anger management, the way it's done across the country sort of wrote and by cookie you know cutter. like cookie cutter treatment plans that is very different from requiring well nope here's what i'm going to do we're going to we're going to push your case off for 9 months and you're going to go and you're going to seek out forensic treatment for your issues and it's yeah. not going to be group it's not going to be cookie cutter and you know and maybe that's what they have to pay and they'll bitch about the how much it costs i'm sure they will but that very thing there, them going and sitting and addressing those issues and possibly dismantling the foundation that leads them to act in this way and think in this way could change everything. It could change everything. Yeah. Yeah. Something that is targeted to them and their specific. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Scott. This was heavy. This was also just something we've been wanting to do for a while. And this new research really catapulted that. I, if, if you guys like this topic, I would absolutely invite you all to join us on Get Vocal this weekend. So we're going to have a forensic psychologist join us. His name is Dr. John Delatore. And he is going to talk with us about a presentation he does that looks at extreme beliefs and how that differentiates or maybe morphs into delusions, which we have talked about a lot. Oh my God. Fascinating. I'm so excited. That's great. So this is going to really marry up nicely with this episode. That'll, of course, be Saturday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. You can get right on Get Vocal to follow us and chat with us. Or we stream it live to Facebook and Twitter also. So, and it always, you know, goes up on YouTube at some point. We would love to also see you guys at CrimeCon if you're in the area or want to make a trip to Vegas. It is going to be a crowded weekend. It's like Mm. that sports thing. What's going on? (laughs) It's called the NFL draft. Oh, the NFL draft, that thing. Yeah. It's really big. So (laughs) it's happening in Vegas. It is happening in Vegas. But we, you know, we're going to try a couple of maybe improvisational things with our wonderful colleagues there. Like maybe we'll be able to stream a couple of hours. Yeah, uh, a couple of fun. live things from our from our booths, which yep. would be fun. But if you're there, please come and say hi and let us get a picture with you. We'll uh, have some goodies for you. We have some great new swag coming out. It'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate the hell out of you. You don't even know it. So much. <laughs> so we'll much. see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Good night. Goodbye, folks. Bye. (laughs) Take care. Stay safe. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our podcast production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Esri of Ear Cult Productions. 
The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is used via a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use his great music. Please check out his amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit follow so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast, so you can be the first to be notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening, and please join us each Saturday afternoon following the episode drop for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on Get Vocal entitled Behind the Couch. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.